Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Hey everyone, welcome once again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. Uh, we have an exciting podcast for you today that's, I think, going to help you navigate some of the questions uh, that over the last, I would say, six months to a year have really come up in evangelical circles, conservative evangelical circles in particular, concerning things like what is a nation? Uh, what is theonomy? Is theonomy a good thing? Uh, is theonomy Christian nationalism? Uh, what about libertarianism? Uh, is that acceptable for Christians to be involved in? A lot of these questions are open right now. I, I think probably because of a few things, but um, but most notably, the I think especially with young people, the acknowledgement that the conventional approaches just haven't seemed to work, and people are looking for something that is going to protect their freedoms and help them to continue, uh, at least conservatives, the existence that their parents and their grandparents presumably have uh, had and they want to enjoy and pass down. So um, we have a, a guest today who's thought uh, deeply about these things, actually has a similar trajectory to, to uh, myself, I think, in particular, uh, regarding influences and looking at different options and then rejecting some and embracing others. And uh, so I'm going to invite to the podcast today uh, for the first time, CJ Angle, who uh, has a Substack. You can check out CJ Angle at Substack.com. He has a Twitter handle, Contra Mordor. And then he is the host of the Chronicles Magazine podcast. Everyone should get Chronicles Magazine. So with that, CJ, thank you for joining us and helping us navigate some of these things. Glad to be here. Thanks, John. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, let's start here. You, uh, I, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I assume we're probably around the same age. Uh, not not too too far apart. We, um, we we've grown up at a time when conservatism has been changing. Uh, in, in fact, I didn't know it until recently. But that more paleoconservative line that I'm now advocating more, I guess that kind of died <laughs> when I was a kid. I didn't know it. I didn't know it was happening. And um, and, and conservatism just feels dull. The political conservatism in the mainstream. It it, it doesn't seem like it's um, it's accomplishing what I think Christians in particular want to see done. Um, we, we both lived in this time and now we're looking at the landscape and thinking, where did we go wrong? And I'm wondering if that same question is what has propelled you into considering some of these things. So, you know, what happened? Is that kind of, am I getting it right? Is it, is that the sense that you, you see in yourself and from other younger people? 
Yeah, I mean, the extent of the left's revolution, you know, where it's taken us over the last, even even just five to seven years. I mean, things have been going in this direction for quite some time, but over the last five to seven years, it's obvious to anyone not even paying it to you don't even have to be paying attention it's 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 not just there for those who are looking for it it's it's at everywhere we look it's in the periphery that there has been a complete transformation of our culture and there's um you know all of our instincts that existed in the 1990s where you know my friends and i call them just sort of grill americans they can just get on and everything will work itself out it's just so obviously not um, the way that people thought it was going to be that people are really having to dig deep and reinterpret everything from political theory to political instincts to, you know, the, the role of man and Christian man in the world. I mean, so everything has to come under the microscope and everything has to be rethought. I think that that's part of a growing consensus among younger people is the world made by our grandparents and parents are not sufficient to confront the political enemies of the day. So I think that's what a lot of it, you know, personally for me, and we'll, we'll get into this. I, I know we want to talk about it, but I, I came from just a, just a general like neoconservative family, just sort of a Fox news, Republican Bush era family. Um, you know, it was the Ron Paul years that really set me on the course of looking deeper than just beyond the headline news, which is true for a lot of people. Um, I think the first initial spark was just the complete um, obnoxiousness of the libertarian movement that really made me question what it meant to be part of a political ideology that was um, characterized by just people com with completely different lifestyles and value systems and cultures belonging together based on a shared agreement with propositions, right? Abstractions. Uh, and that's sort of the same. I just, you know, the, I began to realize what Richard Weaver once realized about the socialist movement, that while you may disagree with um, people that are close to you and live similar lifestyles to you, those community aspects are more important than, you know, getting the abstractions agreed upon. You know, that's kind of what a lot of people realized about the socialist movement in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and I realized the same thing about the libertarian movement is that I didn't want to characterize myself as agreeing with all of these people who had these just this weird persona, this this weird um, environment and milieu. And I just didn't want to be a part of that. And I wanted what I had built into me sentimentally at a deeper level. And I realized that there was much more to political theory than just um, blueprinting out uh, just propositions, deriving them deductively and all of those things that there is a difference between like the universal abstractions and the real empirical institutions and communities that are so much more um there's so much more grounding and they're so much more sustaining. And that's really the spark that set me on this, you know, rethinking what it meant to have a political theory. Yeah. I, I do have a similar trajectory then to you. And I wasn't as deeply involved, I think in libertarianism, I did vote for libertarian candidate, Bob Barr. I think that was the first time I voted in a presidential uh, election. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was attracted to some of that because it, it seemed constitutional. I thought maybe it was going back to something that we had lost. And then quickly realize what you're saying. And, and I, I wasn't able to figure that out for years, why they were so um, characterized by fragmentation. And mm -hmm. like it, it's, you know, Calvinists have a cage stage uh, reputation when they want to find Calvinism in every verse in the Bible. And it's kind of like an ideological tunnel vision. Uh, but libertarians, I found, were much worse. They'll argue uh, about anything. And um, 
And so anyway, I, I just want to relate to that and just say, I think there's a lot of viewers right now who are nodding their heads saying, oh yeah, okay. That's, that's exactly what I've been thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so you kind of rejected that and, and I don't know, maybe we need to get into details just a little bit for those who are still in that philosophy. Um, I know for me, it was the non-aggression principle and the free market just don't seem to, you can't reduce everything down to those two issues. And it just seems overly simplistic and abstract to me. I, I, I hear you saying something similar. Is that your critique? Yeah. So my, my critique of, of that is, is more of a methodological critique. Why is it that we can approach politics in terms of like, that's a very, like you would take like the, the most basic propositions that we can find and we like to deduce further propositions until we come up with this political theory. So the, the non-aggression principle is not a starting point. People refer to it as like the an axiom. It's actually not an axiom. It's actually like a summary statement of a certain logic about the meaning of property ownership within the state of nature and how that um, property ownership relates to when you bring other people into the equation. So like the, the great libertarian thinkers like Murray Rothbard and Hans Hoppe, they'll start with this state of nature and then they'll introduce Robinson Crusoe as the only person in the scenario. Then what happens with it, like he mixes his labor with the land itself and creates his property. And that's important because when you add more people into this equation, like Friday on the island, you begin to derive these like, um, these these standards by which you can like determine who owns what and who has the right and proper use of this property and all these things they need you build out from there and you get this whole blueprint for how society works and that's basically like libertarianism and marxists have the same starting point marxists do the same thing they just have different definitions and they chase their definitions and their formulations and their deductions all the way down to their own marxist paradigm of of world politics um and so i think it's a method like i had to go all the way back to the beginning and realize that this is an inappropriate um application of of the state of nature and i had to go all the way back to the beginning and kind of you know find out where i went wrong because libertarianism is actually extremely precise it's precisely precise uh precisely consistent right there's i mean you can come up with a formulation of of libertarianism that really doesn't co contradict itself um, but then the question is, you know, is 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 that the proper use of political theory is to get things precise in an ideal world? Um, and, and does it accurately account for political reality and what is political reality? And so I kind of ask those questions to get myself out of that libertarian world. Yeah, well, one one thing uh, that was great explanation. Um, what, one thing some people who are still attracted to libertarianism might be wondering is, OK, but isn't that how it works? Mm -hmm. Isn't it Robinson Crusoe and then? someone else comes along and you uh, create boundaries and property rights and all of these things. Um, wh what do you disagree with in that scenario that you just painted? Okay. So, you know, one, one of the thinkers that I, that really helped me to rethink these things was the libertarian Hans Hoppe. Right. And so he has this, uh, and you've heard of this, people listening have probably heard of this, but he just, he realized that there was, you know, what he called a covenant community where people with their individual property rights can come together and form a community. And when you form a community of people, you, you have to, you have to give up certain things. You have to create rules um, through uh, that, that basically, um, you know, transcend the community itself and, and the community, the people in this society have to adhere to these rules. Um, but then it, it dawned on me that the, the continuity of this community was, was people would have offspring and that, that new 
you know, sons and daughters would come up and their rights were integrated within this community. Their father, they, they were, um, you know, there's the theory of representation. So they, their fathers would be the ones together that are representing and uh, facilitating these rights from the individual through the community. And this community itself preceded the individual. Right. And so then when the when the fathers die and the sons grow up, they're still within the boundaries. They're still within these tensions of obligations and duties and rights. And there's just this mixed situation. And then you look back at like the, um, you know, the British, you know, the British uh, tradition of legal theory, like uh, Edmund Burke would be like the father of modern conservatism. But he was resting on older people like John Selden. And John Selden pointed out that the entire history of Western civilization is the combining and separating and migration of these groups, of these communities that carry with them rights and duties and obligations. So you can come up with this blueprint of how a covenant community can work like Hans Hoppe, and then you realize that's what history is. It's the development of these things, and our rights are integrated into political society they don't you can't take them you can't abstract them from that and then apply them onto a system it doesn't work like that so everything is historically based everything is uh you know results from history and from the political dynamics of your parents and your grandparents and your ancestors and everything is it you know within the context of a, of a social order and i and i began to realize that that's you know that's entirely consistent no one's rights are being breached when they come into a society and they're integrated in because the society itself and the orders and the rules and all those things preceded the individual, the individual didn't proceed only in an abstract way does an individual proceed a society. And this is, this is the classic contribution of traditionalist conservatism. This is what Edmund Burke was saying. This is what Joseph de Maistre in France was saying about the French revolution is he had never met a human being. He'd only met Frenchmen and Englishmen and Germans. He had met people that, um, we're born within a context and these the social order is the thing that determines the rights and liberties and duties and obligations and restraints and boundaries on the individual. Uh, the individual is not born free and everywhere in chains. He's actually born within the context of a, of a, of a structure, of a political structure, and he needs to adhere to those things Um you know, over history. And so that's, that's kind of the point of, of conservatism is you're born within the context. And, and it also makes you realize that, you know, the blessings of liberty are something that have been earned. We are blessed to live in a political or, you know, Westerners were blessed to live in a situation in which their ancestors had, uh, you know, uh, been able to achieve these liberties and apply them within a specific political order. And that's the blessing of living in the West. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, you're, you're reminding me of when I read uh, How to Be a Conservative, Roger Scruton, and he talks about community, uh, the society, the present society being um, actually, uh, it's connected to the past and the future. It's, it's a, I don't remember the exact quote, it's a famous quote, but he, he has, uh, like he references a constitution, ourselves and our posterity, people who weren't around for the constitution were part of this framework that was uh, then, and, and that framework came from somewhere else. It came from, uh, you know, British common law and stuff like that. Um, one of the turning points I know in my life in realizing what you're talking about, I don't know if you've read this essay is Richard Weaver's uh, two, I think it's uh, two types of American individualism. Have you read that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. A while ago. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he talks about uh, the more, the Northeastern uh, transcendentalists, 
and how they did believe you were born into this state of nature. And uh, uh, then he talks about more this individualism from the South that says you're actually born into a community with obligations. And that just cleared so much up for me. I thought, oh, yeah, we are. That's the truth. We are born into a community with mm -hmm. obligations uh, attached to it. We learned that in a family. So, so you reject this libertarianism. Um, but the crazy thing, the crazy thing is that's actually like the idea that you can be born into a covenant community, which is sort of like one rendition of a political society. But the idea that you can be born into that and you have the obligation to adhere to the structures and the strictures that you're born into, it actually doesn't breach libertarianism. Because there's no, you're not, you're, there's no rights that are being trampled when you're born into that situation. When you're born into a family, when you, there's rules in that house, right? Like even as stupid as like no walking on the carpet, you know, which in my house was a crime, right? You can't walk on the carpet with your shoes on. Like right. you are born into the situation, and your rights as a as a as a child in that situation are not being breached, right? It's just the first level of your integration into political society. There's no rights being breached there. You're born into a situation, into a context. Right, right, yeah. So, and I think most libertarians would agree with that. Right, uh, that right. They would say, yeah, of, of course, that, that's just the way the world works. You have to be born into a family. You have to learn before you can have responsibility. But then, but then the question is, like, you know, does your father, as a child, does your father represent you? Does he have the right yeah. to, does he have the right to make decisions on your behalf? He does. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. Like he you don't ask consent for a child to change his diaper. I know these are stupid arguments, but like you, you just can see that this the entire structure of the world. And when you grew up, you have obligations and you have to fit within the structure of the community around you. You know, do you, do you think some of this comes back to just a sense of natural law, divine providence, uh, the way God structured things and conservatives? paleoconservatives adhering to that saying we want to try to 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 live within that and match that but knowing we don't ha live in a perfect world and so um yeah, th there's more of a, a i guess a, a live and let live reasonableness i see to paleoconservatives that i don't see as much in libertarians um and, and there's you know tom woods is maybe an example of someone who is reasonable more on that libertarian side but but in general a lot of libertarians tend to be a lot more high strung and and want to impose these abstractions and uh it, there's a revolutionary like mindset they have whereas conservatives don't seem like they have that as much they're they're acknowledging there's there's a providence behind the existence that they inhabit i think that's true i think that libertarians could be split and this is one of the problems is libertarianism the, the meaning of libertarianism to me is just the adherence or the assent to the non-aggression principle so you can have all those other things in the background and they're sort of like sub liberty. They're like, they're like extra libertarian things. But yeah, I think mostly there is that like um, that sort of like Trotskyist mentality to universalize and to apply, you know, individual rights as they formulate it onto the world for sure. Like that's probably like the main aspect of libertarianism. And they're very critical of like community dissent and local dissent. Like if you look at the, like the, like the regime libertarians, they're really critical of local level, um, you know, political decisions that in their mind um, are, are at odds with the non-aggression principle. They would rather have a central body enforcing libertarian uh, ideals, right? So like, the, yeah, that's that's probably the main thrust of libertarian. Probably the people surrounded at the Mises Institute um, are the exception to that. Yeah, yeah. And that's the odd thing, too, is there, there are people I just uh, interviewed someone uh, who writes for Mises and I'm like, well, we probably get along on most things. I don't see a problem here. Um, 
So behind all this, before we leave libertarianism, um, I, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but do you think that there's a different anthropology at the base of, of some of this, that um, libertarians and liberals tend to have an optimistic view of man, and, and, and it gets back to that state of nature where man is uh, born into a situation where, um, I don't know, there's a goodness about him or a perfectibility about him, whereas I think conservatives traditionally have been more suspicious of that thinking that actually one of the reasons we need to be born into societies uh, for stability and for structure is because the descent into chaos and sin and anarchy and all these things is an ever-present threat and uh and, and so man is not good innately there there's that, that christian infusion um is that spot on would you agree with that would you change that construction no, I think that's true. Uh, of course, you know there are libertarians for sure that that think of man as evil, and that's why they don't want the state, right? Because man can't be trusted with that kind of power. Um, but for the most part, I do think that that would be a major distinguishing mark of libertarians. You know, the overall milieu of libertarianism is an optimistic view of man. You know, like for most of them, for sure, and like the paleo conservative, you know, thrust is that man is not perfectible that he is corrupted, he'll always be corrupted, and therefore politics is forever. You can't transcend politics. And this is one of the points that I've made in a recent essay, um, well, for Paul Gottfried's anthology, um, the fact that that politics isn't something that we can transcend. And the mistake of the 20th century was thinking that we could transcend politics. Um, there's different... There's different um, like like so the libertarians will use like their own formulations of of the law in order to transcend politics whereas like the administrative state will use experts and technocrats and like you know economists and all these things to transcend politics it's like the science of like um the, the science of like administrating justice administrating rights administrating all these things so they have different ways of transcending politics but the paleoconservative point is that politics is actually forever you can't transcend it you have to always be engaging in this struggle between mutually exclusive visions of the world that's kind of the meaning of, of politics and that's history i think that's why so many historic people who study history end up looking at some of these more innovative ideas that are are of recent uh, origin mm -hmm. and thinking man these don't work actually <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, all right. So, so you're, you're not a libertarian. Um, you, uh, did, did you ever call yourself a theonomist or no, no I you, never, you never did, mm -mm. but I'm okay. familiar with it for sure. Well, I, I'm curious why you're familiar with, is it just cause you're a Christian and that was, uh, presented to you or where did you find out about theonomy? Well, I mean, theonomy, like, you know, they were, they were like historically that the theonomists, like if you consider like the Christian reconstructionists in like the 1960s and 70s and 80s, like the theonomists themselves were integrated into the libertarian movement organically. Yeah. That like Gary North and Rush Dooney, like Rush Dooney is like the founder of California homeschooling movement. So like the theonomists were always there. They were always behind this. I mean, Gary North was chief of staff, well, not chief of staff, but he was the chief economist for Ron Paul. So they've always been part of that. So you, when you when you interact in these circles and you write for Lou Rockwell or you write for Mises, you're inevitably going to come across them. I had a website, reformedlibertarian.com, where I was just exploring the you know connectivities between reformed Christianity and libertarianism. And obviously, reformed libertarian like that that just touches the heart of like theonomists who are into that. Uh, integration as well. They have a different methodology, but that's how I came about them. And I really, you know, I really spent a lot of time 
together with a, a buddy of mine, um, just interacting with them and trying to understand them. I thought about it for a little bit, but I never, I never took the plunge in that direction. It never made uh, exegetical sense to me. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and that's, I want to explore that a little bit. Cause I, I did uh, go harder into that. I actually, for a time, uh, if I can remember correctly, this was a while ago, but I think I even had put my, on my Facebook, they used to, you had political views you could put. And I think I put Theonomist at one time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was reading a lot of Greg Bonson, especially, but I had read uh, some Rush Dooney. I'd re I had uh, read some Gary North, um, mm -hmm. some uh, who Gary DeMar. You know, I, I was looking into these guys and, and thinking like, well, this is it, right? It's, if, it's not the libertarian thing. It's this. And, and of course, they have their own arguments for why what they're presenting is more constitutional. And so because everyone wants to kind of hitch their wagon to the founders if they can. Right. Mm -hmm. And say, well, they, they're we're just saying what they were saying. In fact, I'm reading a book now, uh, Mission of God <laughs> uh, by Joe Boo. And he says some of the same things, of course, uh, trying to route it through the Puritans. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you know, and there is positive stuff. I actually still recommend some of the books on God's law that I thought were so helpful to, to for me to understand. Uh, the applicability of it, but there, there is something missing. Uh, and, and, and I've since then realized that it's, it's not perhaps comprehensive. I'd be curious though, to, um, to hear your critique and what, what you saw that you found lacking in theonomy. Cause I, I think a lot of this audience, uh, or I don't know a lot, but, but it's certainly a portion of this audience is probably into that. Yeah, there's, there's different cases for theonomy. Uh, my, my critique of theonomy would be broader now than it was then um i consider libertarianism and theonomy and classical liberalism to be types of universalism where there is one standard or one law to be applied to all peoples uh otherwise they're lacking in justice i think that's sort of the the meaning of universalism and i'm not a universalist in that way so i think theonomy and libertarianism can sort of get along um in a, in a way that I am critical of now that I wasn't then. But my case against theonomy then, then was much more related specifically to the nature of the Mosaic economy or, you know, the Mosaic covenant and the, the function of the civil laws, um, the function of, of God being able to give specific civil laws to a people in a way that um, has since expired um, and I don't think it's exegetically justifiable to take, you know, a situation that has expired and apply those same laws today. So the theonomists come in two forms. One form is that they think that this covenant is basically the same. It's it's like one covenant with two different administrations. And so they use that type of language to justify the fact that civil law has not expired. It's still applicable today. The other type, um, they call themselves like general equity theonomists. And in my opinion, that's a misuse of the general equity clause in the Westminster Confession. But what they mean by that is even though um, you, you can't say that it's the same civil law to be applied to the same covenant, they can say that, you know, um, God's law, God's provided and revealed law for one people, you can't beat that. And if you can't beat that, you might as well adopt it because that's the mind of God itself. And therefore, it's a perfect law. So those are the two like like arguments for theonomy. Um, I think Bonson and North and Rush Tunic are sort of especially Bonson would be in the first category. Um, I think general equity was responding to arguments made in the like the 2000s. Um, you know, especially when I was involved, I think the general equity theonomy sort of came out of out of that. People started adopting more of that 
type of thing. That's when you get like all the 1689 Baptists who call themselves theonomists is because they don't necessarily believe that it's one covenant to administrations. But at the same time, in looking for a perfect law, um, you know, they, they would just make the argument that you can't beat that. So my argument for the first one is is that there's uh, I, I disagree with the, the argument that it's one covenant and two administrations. And so I don't even need to really deal with anything more than that because it's, you know, an inappropriate use of the application of the mosaic economy onto today's economy. The the second one, I think, is actually a problem with universalism. I think it's completely unnecessary and unflexible to apply something in such a rigid way. And it's abuse and it's an abuse of the function of the Bible in our daily and political lives. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. Uh, I've said, because I'm friends with people who call themselves general equity theonomists. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of popular right now. Mm-hmm. And people have even said, uh, who are listeners to this podcast, like, well, forget about Christian nationalism. Like, like if the label is a stumbling block, let's just be general equity theonomists or something. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, well, that's not going to really, like the media is going to make hash me to that too. But, um, you know, what I hear them saying often in, in the simplistic form is just, like, can't we just be biblical? Can't like, doesn't the Bible have wisdom? Isn't the and, and, and I sympathize with this. Isn't Israel's laws? Is, weren't they supposed to be a light to the nations? Didn't right. the Queen of Sheba come and, and marvel at Solomon's wisdom? And, and and to all that, I say, well, yeah, you know, I, I do think like there is something to obviously there's something to learn there. We're given the Old Testament and, and this is a uh, the character and nature of God is given to us. Um, as an example and applied in laws but but yeah I, I do agree with what you're saying like this isn't uh these are more principles that we in general there, there are like the ten commandments are certain laws but but most of the legal code of the mosaic law is just going to be principles we can maybe draw that are applicable and, and it's going to suit the context right that, that's the other that, i think that's the other thing you were saying is that this has to be something that actually works in the society that we live in right now and that people will in general accept and be able to live under um, not, not like it's a popularity contest, but that it's, it's something that can actually be enforced and um, it, it, it's going to run. This is more the conservative libertarian thing we were talking about. It's going to run with uh, the traditions and the obligations that already exist and not just steamroll them and destroy them. Um, So, yeah, I mean, so I, I think I'm with you on that. Yeah, this this is why like this I I really heavily promote the distinction between particularism and universalism. The idea that there's one law and it can be applied in the same way to all peoples is very revolutionary and it's very leftist. It's which is a which is I- ironic, but in my opinion, it's a very leftist instinct to take a, you know a single law and, and and expect all people to um you know, to, to to change their political systems in adherence with this one single thing. I think that's a, a type of leftism. And I really do emphasize particularism, that there are polic- particular cultures that have to take into mind particular threats, particular enemies, and particular political situations, and even like the instincts and the sentiments of the people themselves. They have to integrate those things into their political decisions. And so I, I, I differentiate between universalism and particularism. And that's like, that is the main difference between paleoconservatism and neoconservatism or paleoconservatism and libertarianism slash theonomy. Just this idea that you can have this universal rule that all people, all peoples, all nations, regardless of their background, regardless of their political threats, they have to uh, you know, adhere to this single thing is a very revolutionary 
thing. And I, and I agree more with like, like, this is, in my opinion, this is John Calvin's view that there's, there's, there's like specific situations and specific threats that we have to craft laws in, in reference to like different nations struggle with different things. And so therefore there's a lot more flux uh, to the situation. And, and there's a lot more, uh, you know, um, variety between the nations, depending on their circumstances. And it's not just law, it is politics as well. Politics is distinct from law. Um, and this is, I, I do make a distinction also between like politics and legalism. And I think that one of the mistakes of like modern political theories is it is legalistic in the sense that they take a body of law and they expect all people to adhere to it. They expect all political systems to change their their functions and their initiatives, you know, to adhere to the single universal legal standard. Where I, whereas I think in much more in a situational contextual um, scenario, like so, like you're you're going to have laws relating to like the um, you know the promotion of like transsexualism in a different way in 2023 than you would in the 19th century. Like there would be no need to like create laws about transsexual propaganda in movies in the 19th century because it wasn't a threat at all, right? But in 2023, you have to change your strategy and change your priorities in light of the the changing dy uh, dynamics. Sure. And, and so let's let's uh, flesh that out a little bit more. Uh, so people that was a great explanation. I've said that um, Christian nationalism, at least those who positively advocate it, most notably Stephen Wolf, is about trying to preserve and secure a specifically Anglo Protestant, at least in, in the context in which he's writing heritage of some kind. Right. It speaks English, English forms of worship, uh, symbols, all of that. And theonomy, you, you can you can go back and actually you can find a lot of quotes and some of the people you cited earlier. Uh, the theonomists seemed fine with mass immigration, replacement, doesn't really matter what language or what culture. It, it, as long as they apply the law of God, that's what we're concerned about. So uh, obviously that's going to bring you to totally different views on uh, things like um, border security and immigration and, and that kind of thing, or at least it could lead to that. Um, th that's a specific... Uh, distinction that I see, and, and I think the paleoconservative side would be more like, no, we're, we're trying to preserve our heritage, what we've been passed down, we're the true, beautiful, good things. We want to keep those things for our children. And some of those things are things like barbecue, right? They're things like, uh, they're, 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 and I'm picking that specifically because it is a cuisine, which, so there's a less of a moral quote unquote aspect to it. But it's something that you value in your culture. This is our food. It's ours. It has that possession um, about it. And we, we don't want to give that up. We want to defend that and, and make sure that that can continue. Um, so, so, so anyway, um, that's, that's one way that I've tried to make that distinction. Um, what, what would you say, though, and this, this will help us get more specific to the people who just say, well, look, every society is held accountable by God to not sanction murder let's say like abortion's wrong no matter where you are no matter who you are right so th so this idea that um morality is universal in one sense uh do you make a distinction there that there is a universal morality but the application is different is that what you're saying that's true but that's also a legalistic um perspective that's also a legalistic issue whether like murder is wrong is a legalism i you know i really want to emphasize that there's a distinctly political category um, in that that politics refers to, um, you know, like it refers to something broader than just just the laws themselves. It refers to the interests of the of the of the nature 
of the realm. It refers to something that's specific to like an overarching culture, not just the specific laws within it. And so, you know, the, 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 the types of the application of things like murder are actually, they could be similar. Um, but I'm talking more like in, in a political sense where like you're, 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 you're looking at protecting a certain way of life independent of those legal things. So you can, you can find more universality in the laws, but I don't you think you can find as much universality in the political struggle in, in, in the, you know, the, the keeping and protection and preserving of culture itself. Like, I, I think that like things like, um, like 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 English and French and German architecture. I think that there are political reasons for um, halting like the infusion of like Islamic or African architecture and, and artistic influence into the public domain in those countries. So that's not really like a universal law question. It's more of a political culture. Like how do you protect the identity of the realm? And those are things that can vary. And, and, and the law of God doesn't really specify exactly how you deal with those situations. And, and so this is one of the reasons that like on things like immigration, things like um, culture and even, even ethnicity, even like the idea of prosperity, like posterity, posterity and ancestorship, those don't really matter because the law doesn't really speak to them because the law is, you know, it's very specific about one, you know, one situation. And so it can't have a broad answer to those things. But I think those, those political questions are where the variance lies. And that's where we need to focus or the different to different differentiate between Christian nationalism and like theonomy and, and things like that. No, that's good. Uh, so, so one of the examples I thought of uh, in the murder, because murder is just such an easy case, I think to, to, for people to accept that, well, that's wrong, like across time and space. Um, in the legal sense, obviously, we're not talking about a political sense here, but in a legal sense, um, if you go back even 150 years in some places in this country, dueling was accepted as as part of the fabric of society. That it, it's mm -hmm. a tradition that had been passed down, and you didn't you weren't murdering someone if you killed someone in a duel. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't seen. Now it would be seen that way today, right? But at mm -hmm. that time, it wasn't seen that way. So was it murder? And, and I, I'm not sure if that's kind of what you're getting at, is that there are these contextual things that will channel or determine how um, how some universal law is applied. Um, but those things aren't necessarily th th that's not politics. Um, so where where is the integration then? I guess would be a good question. Where's the integration of these universal laws that God has laid down and politics? Where does that come up? I think the point of politics, you know, for the paleoconservative is to look at where things are now and where the threats are to your way of life. So it's not like I'm sitting here trying to, like, come up with this Anglo-Saxon ideal. Either, right. 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 You know, this is paleoconservative is very non-ideal. It's looking at what what are the sustaining aspects of our culture that need to be sustained and where are the threats coming from? Right. These can be like so, for instance, like paleoconservative is not committed in an absolute way to constitutionalism. It's you know, it's, it's committed in absolute in a more absolute way to its own people and its heritage. This is why there's conversations about a Protestant Franco, because at what point is the you saw that, too? <laughs> yeah. So at yeah. what point can we say that the Constitution has already been subverted and obliterated? Because our ultimate commitment is not to the Constitution. Like right. in in the sixteenth in, in the seventeenth century, uh, in England, those people were proud of their heritage. They were proud of their culture, and they didn't need an American constitution to um, to bolster their freedoms. 
because you know because that's the way it's so we don't have this like ultimate commitment to any one system so that's just the thing that i would emphasize is that politics is always in flux and perhaps it is unfortunate that we live in a world where we need a protestant franco if, if that's the solution but those are the types of conversations that we need to have is to what extent do do we have to make uh, you know exercise political will in order to do what's right for the people that we belong to and the people that we want to preserve and protect right so, so that's it's it's much more circumstantial that politics is circumstantial politics is not the same of morality as morality which is um universal which is universal which does have universal standards because you know god is going to judge us you know, our, our righteousness has to be perfect according to his law. That's not politics. Politics is the role like you po po politicians, political leaders actually have a God given authority to make decisions related to like in a way. This is what Stephen Wolf says. In a way, they represent and mirror the power of God. They have the authority to make decisions that bind the realm like that's a lot of that's a lot of authority. They don't they don't just uh, they don't just take like law. They don't just take um, either administrative positive law or like mosaic law and just apply it to society. They actually have the power within themselves to make rules for the realm. And in some ways they are above the law. I mean, this is an ancient debate, too. But, you know, but this is this is Stephen Wolf's position that in the lead in the ruler is embodied the authority to to decide the exception of the law to look outside the realm and see what is the most important things to make political decisions on. This is why in his chapter on the Christian Prince, he talks about the fact that the ruler mirrors God. God gives him authority to make decisions for the realm, even if they're outside. Um, this, that's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of corruption that can take place, but that's the type of authority that political rulers have. Right. And that's and they are held accountable to God for that, how they use that uh, in an eternal sense. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why we take an oath on the Bible in our tradition uh, to say that there's divine rewards and, and punishments that are coming. And, you know, because this is such a powerful office, having the sword and wielding that, then you, you need to make sure that that's that's the only check, really. Um, so no, I think that's helpful. Uh, it, it's it seems I'm going to use a word, but boomer con. It seems boomer con. Um, to look at the constitution as almost like a suicide pact is something that uh first first of all to assume that we're somehow living still under it i mean i guess in some <laughs> vestigial ways and in some there maybe some certain legitimate ways but but for the most part it, we are kind of post-constitutional and and then to uh assume that you know if we just get back to that it's like i'd love to get back to that i really would i think probably you would too i mean that'd be great if we could get back to uh, federalism and constitutional republic and all that. These are great things. But as you're saying, the situation we're in right now is different than the situation mm -hmm. the men of 1789 faced. Mm -hmm. And what do we do in this situation? And, and it is going to, I think that's why these unconventional things are coming up. And some people want a national divorce and some people want a Protestant Franco. Um, I'm not like opposed to these guys. Like I, I'm thinking they're, they're trying to figure something out that's going to help protect their people. Yeah. And, and that gets back to the what you're saying about conservatism, right? It's really about protecting, preserving, loving, loving is, is key here, the people that you grew up with, the community right. that you're in, not and being in love with ideas. This is uh, the, the Franco conversation is interesting because it's a really good example because, you know, his seizure of power was illegal. Like it was it was not consistent with, you know, this the Spanish uh, you know, legal order, 
you know, for a military general to take power. That's that's an illegal thing. Right. But he made a political decision on the basis that it would have been better for him to subsume, subsume power into himself than to let the Marxists control the Spanish government. In his mind, in his calculation, in his decision making, he 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 said that it was better for the Spanish people, not in an ideal world. He wasn't sitting there crafting what's the best right. for Spain in an right. ideal world. He said, my alternatives are Marxists leading Spain with their atheism or his defense of Catholic Spain. Right. We're not Catholic. So it, like it's not like we're saying that, you know, we need to we need a Catholic Franco. We need someone that represents the organic culture of America to defend itself, even against the things that we are trained to love and preserve, like the Constitution, because our 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 conversation here isn't about constitutionalism versus Protestant Franco. Our conversation here is about is Protestant Franco better than any other alternatives that are legitimately on the table right now. What's happening right. right now in DC? What type of power is being wielded by the left? And what are our alternatives to that? We're not saying yes. that that the founders made a mistake in drafting the constitution. They should have gone with a dictatorship. That's not how politics works. Yeah. Politics is specific threats, specific enemies, and specific solutions and uh, friends that can be juxtaposed to those problems. So what do you make of uh, the guys right now on Twitter, and this is interacting, uh, th this is integrated into the Christian space on Twitter. Uh, people like James Lindsay mm -hmm. um, and, and others who are more, well, they're, they're on the left. We'll, we'll put, I'll put it that way. But they have gained an audience somehow since the woke movement in these more conservative, quote unquote, settings. And so you have a lot of like Fox News listeners now listening to them and wanting to do what they say, think, you know, thinking there's a lot of wisdom there. Uh, and of course they are making the arguments. I think that you just said that, well, we just need to go back to the constitution as if I don't even think his conception of the constitution would be ours, but, mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but that's just the solution. And anything that's short of that is un-American. You're just not an American, I guess. Like if mm -hmm. you don't want that, which is, is crazy to me. Cause like, if you grew up here, you speak the language, you, have whatever you're invested here like you're unless you have this abstract idea that you of, of, of this freedom of speech in his conception and freedom of assembly in his conception unless you hold to those in an abstract way i guess you're really not an american that's the sense i'm getting are you seeing that yeah of course yeah that's i mean and that's that's the problem because i i don't think that that's a that's not a political argument you know, that's that's a utopian argument. Like we should get back to the constant. How, how is that engaging in power? How is that legitimately confronting the threats? Because right now the left is the most powerful influence in America, in, West, in the Western Hemisphere. And they have no interest in returning to the Constitution. So if you want to return to the Constitution, you have to demonstrate how you can politically do it. And I don't think it's it's politically feasible. I don't think that's the nature of of like legitimately and realistically confronting an enemy you can't just return to something from 200 years ago and just like all all we have to do is just assent and agree to go back that's not like this is one of the lessons of power that like james burnham talked about in his machiavellian's book like you have to you can't just look at theory and well wishes and like ideals you have to look at what where are the mechanisms and machinations of power you have to wield actual power to confront power you can't just have this 
you know, dream of returning to something better. Like I would love to, I'm a, I'm a big returner. Like, you know what I mean? I'm a big, like, let's return to the pre-industrial age, but that's not a legitimate political argument. You know, that's just a sentiment. That's just a whim. That's just whimsical. Um, that's not political argument. So like, so the idea that you can return and the idea that it's good to pursue that, um, it, 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 it ignores the fact that the, the liberal neutral rhetoric is actually what fuels the left. They rely on conservatives taking positions of neutrality and taking positions of um, apolitical action. So like they don't want to they, they rely on conservatives not acting in order to get their way across, because as the left doesn't care about neutrality, the left doesn't care about the Constitution or liberalism or all of these individual, all the rhetoric that we um, that we find you know admirable. The left doesn't care about any of that. And so they have an incentive to keep their opposition, the conservative movement, to keep them in neutral world, to keep them fighting for something that because when you absorb all of that energy and all that bandwidth into taking a position of no position, you actually prevent them from con confronting the left. And that's what the left loves. The left loves neutral, centrist Republicans that don't take committed, uh, you know, take, you know, they don't have committed stances on these issues. So, so would examples of this be every time you hear a conservative say, well, if they wouldn't have done this to the Muslims, how they're treating those Christians, I bet they wouldn't have done that to try. And because the point they're making is, well, they're not being fair, right? It, it, it's yeah. appealing to like they're, they're not being neutral and, and, and as if that's going to work. Right. Uh, same thing with, well, the Democrats are the real racists or whatever. It's like the same thing. And it's like they don't care that they're hypocrites. <laughs> like, yeah, not, yeah hypocrisy not... is a feature of their movement. You know, right. it's not a, it's right. not a weakness. You know, they actually right. are like they say, well, you, you know, you're the real racist. You're the ones being anti-white. It's like, yeah, that's part of their agenda. That's right. part of their function, you know. Um, so like even even things like colorblind lists, that's not a that's not a political that's not a political stance. That's a whimsical. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, it's it's well intentioned for sure, um, but it's not a it's an apolitical stance. It's not yeah. taking a decision. It's not making a decision. It's not fighting for a specific group of people and defending their way of life. It's so, trying to so, get out of it. <laughs> well, so, someone who, you know, doesn't judge people by the color of their skin and their personal interactions. And right they're, they're judging by the content or the character. And that's not they don't calculate business deals based on in-group preference, let's say. And they're uh, like, someone like that. You know, that's that's good and fine and, and great. But what I think what you're saying is then but taking that to the political level mm -hmm. of like, let's die on the hill of uh, 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 of of colorblindness i don't know how we got onto this but i guess we're here now <laughs> so it, that that's not it, it fails to recognize what's happening right now and, and a good example it, i think um, feels, real, go ahead go ahead no, go no ahead. real quick i was just going to say another james Lindsay thing that just popped into my head regarding this is i think it was paul godfrey or someone said anti-white racism right they use that phrase mm -hmm. james L Lindsay was on that like a duck on a june bug with mm -hmm. this is this is woke basically he wants to paint that as woke because you're recognizing that there's some kind of an attack on tangible people white people instead of recognizing the i guess the philosophical commitment they have uh to race being a social construct or, or something like that like you're you can't call it anti-white racism is that i think that's what i'm talking about right now i don't know if you have something to share no. on that no, no, I agree. I, I think I think the problem is, is that like you're responding to political you're responding to political movements with uh, a different type of argument about like how you should function as, as individuals 
in your daily life. You're not right. so like if you have if you have an this is this is one of the it's one of the dilemmas of the American situation right now is you have a left that is operating on racial categories and you have a conservative movement that is refusing to. And so there's no one to defend the enemy for, of the left. There's no one to defend them because the left saying, you know, whites need to be uh, repudiated because of their history of colonialism and racism and all these things. And we need to, uh, you know, we need to push for the uh, not even the not even the equal treatment, but the positive treatment of all these minorities. And there's there's no political response to that to defend the whites. And so what happens is we're inevitably going down. We're going down a really dark hole and there's going to be. Um, racial dilemmas all over the place. And that's kind of going to characterize the future. And it's not going to be fun uh, for a lot of people to go down this path. But the the fact is that the left's creating this and it's not a political response to stay colorblind. It's just not, I'm not saying that you have to like, you know, make white your only like commitment and all that stuff. Like, you know, it's a very dangerous line to walk into this area, but just pay attention to the political dynamics of it and be aware of the consequences of not confronting the left, um, based on its own categories because what you're doing is you're neutralizing your own opposition you know you have no there's no one to defend heritage americans and well, that's not, a, yeah we're yeah. not even allowed to identify it let, let alone defend it we're not even allowed to say yeah, but just that recognize recognize where that rhetoric comes from i mean it's 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 purposeful like they're putting us between a rock and a hard place you have to either not defend yourself or you have to be a white nationalist like this, usually those are the political options. It's, it's really, it's a dilemma, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I don't want the white nationalism. <laughs> I'm not that. Um, but I do want to defend the, 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 what the, who the left is trying to go after. Exactly. Needs to be defended. And exactly. And it's the same with the Christian nationalist thing. Um, I, I think where Christians are being targeted. Uh, and, and I've argued before, I think the whole let's go anti-white is really more at the end of the day, it's related to the hating of Christianity because it's hating Western civilization. It's and what, what crafted or uh, really um, what was one of the main influences on Western civilization, Christianity, it's embedded in everything. So behind that, I've always thought that there is an attack on Christianity and now people are realizing it. So what's the response? Well, hey, let's recognize they're attacking Christianity and let, let's have a Christian nation. Let's let's get back to a Christian government and let, let's keep these infusions of Christianity that have existed for centuries. And now that's being treated the same way. You're not allowed to say that again. And I, I, I don't want to keep ratting on James Lindsay, but I guess because in the last week he's just been on a roll. Well, He does personify a certain mentality, <laughs> you know, like it's important to, because he really does embody, I think what's been wrong with the, like the conservative movement, like their, their addiction to like, neutralism and the neutrality of institutions and liberalism in a world where the left's not interested in having those conversations, you know, like, right. I think he really does perfectly encapsulate that mood. And he's a, he's a great person to talk about. I think. Yeah. It's not about it's, James Lindsay himself. No, 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 it's not at all. And, and I like yeah. the guy I've met him. He's a, I, I like him on a personal level. Um, but, but the tweet I was thinking about is something someone sent me of, of him uh, on this trans stuff that it, there's going to be this uh, Hegelian thing going on between the, the Christians on the one end who are going to be proud to be anti-gay and then and homophobic and then the, uh, the the trans activists and LGBT people on this other end and that we shouldn't fall for it, that it's a trap, right? If we start responding to the, the threats, we are falling into the trap. We're actually losing the war and we're going to end Christianity, I guess, effectively, which theologically, I know that can't happen, but that's what he's saying. We're going to end Christianity, neutralize it, 
if we respond to the threats before us. I, I just think that's insane. Like we, what do you, what do you want us to do? Like we're being attacked. Well, don't defend yourself. That's what yeah. I hear. Yeah. Because in his mind, in his mind, there is no, like, it's, it's really crazy. He doesn't really see the Christian base, like the, the Christian masses as actually believing these things. He's kind of, th he kind of thinks it's like this minority position among Christians, which is bizarre to me because like, 95% of Christendom for over a thousand years has taken these exact stances, probably even more radical than right. conservatives today. You know, like that's, that's definitely the norm. On the other hand, I definitely think there is a class and attention coming. And I do think the, the regime in Washington is going to exploit these frustrations. And I think they're going to criminalize, if not formally, then economically, they're going to criminalize these types of uh, opinions for sure. I think it is people can get, don't get caught up in traps like that. Their traps are coming and they're going to use, they're going to use the things that you hold so, so dear. They're going to use like um, I call it homo aversion, like the distaste and the dislike and the moral repugnance of homosexuality. They're going to use these righteous mentalities against you. James Lindsay is right on that. On the other hand, he's wrong that we should, that we should stop, speaking out about it and stop holding these positions. That's, that's lame. <laughs> What's your advice then to Christians out there? Um, Cause I, I think you're right about that. There are these traps. It's obvious. It doesn't take a yeah. rocket scientist to figure out that the left is going to pounce on the slight. I mean, we saw January 6th. So they're, they're, they're going to pounce on anything that happens and characterize the whole right as, as terrible because of mm -hmm. uh, the actions of a few or whatever. So what do you say to Christians who are frustrated about the target situation we just saw? Yeah. Again, this is particularism. Like some people are uncancelable. Some people have their own businesses and they live in red America and they have the obligation and the duty to take advantage of where God has placed them to speak out and to be bold. Other people are in a, in a more fragile position and they rely on the jobs in order to take care of their families, their, their wives and children. Um, that's your priority. And so you don't want to put yourself in a really stupid situation and harm your family either. So again, where are you personally? Do you own land? What can you do with that land? Do you have a job that that allows you to be more uncancelable? If so, you have a duty to, to defend, you know, the, the Christian our Christian heritage and your uh, ancestors and your posterity. You have a duty to stand up and to do that. Don't be afraid, but be wise. You know, like my like I have a wife and kids largely for the most part. I'm basically economically uncancelable. I can I can be on Twitter with my own name. And speak boldly because I can't be fired from my economic situation. It's it's and I'm bold to say whatever I want right now. Uh, if I wasn't in that situation, I have friends who work for like Apple or something, um, but they their families rely on that income, their structure, their house. They have they own like an acre of property. Why is it better to speak out at their work and lose their homes and their property, the the things that are sustaining them and their family? That's that's dumb. So I would say like particularism is really important here. Look at where you are and what you can do. If you're, if the only thing that you can do is build up your children and be a role model to them, then do it. If, if what you can do is get on local school boards and you live in a red, you know, a red area and you can continue to bolster that community and prevent leftist takeovers, then do that. You have an obligation to do that. So look around you and look at what tools you have and don't be ashamed of the fact that all you can do given your economic situation is to take care of your family and your kids. That's noble work. Yeah, no, that's that's really good advice. Uh, okay, bigger question, and this this may be a loaded question and a trap that you want to reject the premise of. I don't know, but it's a question that's asked a lot. 
what is the uh, the or a Christian uh, approach to politics? What what should Christians do politically? And, and sometimes it, it'll be phrased, "What's the biblical approach to politics?" How would you answer those questions if you got them? I would emphasize particularity. You know, like I, I would say the I, I would say that the the role of a Chinese Christian is different in politics than the role of an English or an American Christian in politics. I don't think that we're I don't think that we should reject. See, the way that I approach politics is it's not an aspect of the gospel world. I don't believe that politics is you know, a continuity of like the great commission and the expanding kingdom of God. I think the kingdom of God in that sense is spiritual and it, it it's behind all of world history from the worst excesses of the Bolsheviks to the greatest moments in English Anglican history. Like the, the, the kingdom of God was in both places at the same time. I think our role in politics is as created human beings and we have natural obligations to our family, natural obligations to those that are around us in our communities and those that we're related to on a broader level, I think those are created obligations. I, I'm a two kingdoms person, and I believe that these things are obligations based on our created nature. I, I believe the fact that we're part of the kingdom of God in an ultimate sense and that we're saved and we have an eternal destination does not nullify the types of commitments and obligations that are part of our humanity as created beings. So we have commitments to the church and to the spiritual realm, but we also have commitments to the natural realm, which is temporary. And these natural obligations and duties are good and we should fight for them in light of our own particular heritage and in light of that heritage going forward. And so I am very much a two kingdoms person i reject the r2k the radical or reform two kingdom which, which says that the church has nothing to do with politics but i do believe that in the classical two kingdom paradigm and i think that we have obligations uh, temporal obligations and eternal obligations as well that's exactly what i believe that's that's good uh and i, I love the way you phrased it um I mean, I'm trying to think where to go from here because there's so many questions but we need to land the plane here soon because we've been recording for about an hour um, any final thoughts that you want to just uh, bring to the attention of Christians? Uh, because I, I, what I think some are going to struggle with is if you if you have a mindset, if you grew up in, let's say, circles, libertarian circles, theonomy circles, uh, or just, I don't know, neoconservative circles, any of these kind of um, modernity, I don't know if I'm to say modernity driven, but these 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 political philosophies that are the result of the modern situation, this is going to be a hard pill to swallow. And, you know, I'm wondering if there's any spoonful of sugar that can make the medicine go down. For me, one of them has been, well, look, you see particularity in the Old Testament. You see it even in God telling them not to wear mixed fabrics and to look different than their neighbors. I mean, that's particularity. Hmm. Um, what kinds of things can you say uh, that might help people that struggle with this? You know, I... <laughs> This is kind of a, a cheat, a cheat, a cheat answer, but um, you know, read history. I think that you can read theonomy and stuff into Calvin, which people have done. But if you read chapter twenty of the Institutes of Calvin's Institutes, and you're actually looking for particularity, I think you'll find it much more obviously and transparently than if you're looking for theonomy. Yeah, because yeah. like I, I would say, take these things and read them back into the things that you've already read, because yeah. like Calvin, like. Like he, he 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 keeps saying like there's this allegation that that we are insulting God when we are abrogating certain aspects of mosaic uh, like civil law, um, but he said like you know he, I, let me read this you know he just says that um, 
you know, some laws are not preferred uh, when they are more approved, um, but they have different regard from time and place and the condition of the people. There's some things that are obligated and some things that are enacted. And the, the way we can distinguish between them is what's relevant to the current situation. You know, what is relevant to the specific political aspect? You, you'll read Calvin with a, with a particularist lens and you see it everywhere in chapter 20. He says one nation might be more prone to particular vice were it not so severely repressed. And he says that like some things need to be repressed harshly. Some things need, they don't even need to be addressed at all. It just depends on the, the, the people, where they're at and what the political situation is. So I would say um, just keep in mind that like the magisterial Protestant political theology is much more, pro, uh, is much more particularistic than universalistic. I mean, this is the entire point of like, even, even like Richard Hooker and like the Anglicans and, and the English reformers, like they were all dealing with these particularistic situations. They, none of them approached things as this absolute, this one time given law for all peoples in this universalistic way. All of them taught the fact that it is the role and the function of the ruler to defend his people based on their own heritage and history and cultural sentiments to defend those things in light of universal morality. And you have to, you just have to look for particularity everywhere. You can't read it through a universalistic lens because what you're doing is you're reading it through a modernist lens when you're doing that. Yeah. I, I noticed that recently with uh, Pierre Bray, I was reading his book uh, on the civil magistrate. Well, it's not his book. It's a collection of his essays, but, um, but he talks about the obligation that, the magistrate has to uh, make sure that idolatry isn't publicly venerated. And it's interesting, though, because the way that he applied that, and he was just across the lake from Geneva, where Calvin was, and the way Calvin applied it in Geneva, and the way that all these different lo localities approach this topic and the penalties associated with it and what they would punish and what they wouldn't was different. Because you even see Pierre Verret later in his life talking about basically path Catholics and Protestants can live together. Like we can do this. And it's like, wait a minute, didn't you say, well, yeah, of course he did. But he's also looking at the people who mm -hmm. are under these, these um, and, and what promotes the peace and prosperity and what. So it, it, it is this kind of um, I mean, some are going to call that pragmatism, I suppose. But it's not the it's not pragmatism. It's not the ism. Um, it's just wisdom, I would say. Yeah, it is wisdom. I think that's true. Like some people say, like, we don't you know, we don't want to go back to the magisterial reformers and, and their teachings because it was bad for Baptists. Like that's a common thing, but it's like, right. but we're, we're in 2023 responding to 2023 challenges based on 2023 enemies and 2023 friends. I don't think anybody, like if they legitimately think about like their Presbyterian neighbor is afraid that he's going to endorse something that'll burn you at the stake. That's not how politics works. Again, you're, you're applying universal historical, you're applying, you're applying specific universal situations in a universal way. Like yeah. no, like nobody's going to do that. So, but politics is about friends and enemies based on particular situations and particular challenges, you know? And, and so like the, the idea that we can't learn from Calvin because he was applying it in one way, doesn't mean it's going to be applied today. Like we don't, because nobody's going about thinking that like our, our number one priority right now is to make sure that all, you know, all advocates of believers baptisms are taken out and then we can address the, uh, the transsexual movement. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, we have to be really realistic. People yeah. that are dealing with these these things, they have to realize that um, politics is particular. It's always particular. You know, so someone in the YouTube comments yesterday, and I think they're very well intentioned and they were they were respectful, but they uh, were going down this line of, um, well, you know, what are you specifically going to do to homosexuals? And what are you specifically 
going to do to Muslims? And what are you? And I'm like, I'm not going to do anything. Like I, I'm not like I, I don't have that authority. But like I'm, what you have to understand about this whole Christian nationalist thing, and and, and I, I'm kind of I don't care for the label, but like the people like Stephen Wolf who are positive example trying to to appropriate this. What they're saying is that, look, we don't have every detail worked out and nor we have these huge hurdles first. It's a big tent uh, uh, that's approaching these huge particular threats that we face today. And uh, and so we're not working out right now. OK, when we have this uh, Presbyterian utopia or Baptist utopia, you know, what are we going to do to all? It's like that. That's so um, I, well, I, I just sense ideological thinking behind. That. Yeah. Because politics isn't blueprinting. That's right. not what we're doing. We're not getting into the details. We're not crafting the ideal order. It's an approach. Christian nationalism, as Stephen Wolf describes it, is an approach. It's a method of like determining what is good or bad and how to figure that out, how to set your priorities in line. Right. right. It's not it's not trying to articulate like the the the, the ideal tax code or like the the best GDP targets like it's it's very broad it's looking at like the political aspect of priority making you know yeah, yeah. no that's good well uh we'll, we'll probably have to have you on again because i'm sure there's a lot of questions sparked in people's minds but I, I do want people to follow you if you're on twitter uh contra mordor contra mordor uh and then uh where can they find the chronicles magazine podcast itunes it's on itunes it's on like spotify and google and all those places too um the youtube channels where the video goes so just look for chronicles magazine i think they're redoing their website and we'll have more live links but yeah just look for chronicles magazine on youtube and then um i think the actual rss page is chronicles magazine.captivate.fm or whatever the the, the okay. captivate i'll, I'll yeah. look for it i'll put it in the info section. yeah that's fine okay yeah and you can find it anywhere though yeah and then uh, cj angle at substack.com if you want to read uh, some of the essays and i know you've written on some of this stuff theonomy and libertarianism and all that somewhat yeah it's, it's actually funny because I, I i'm i'm trying to focus more on like paleoconservatism and like paul Gottfried type stuff but i keep getting i keep getting sucked back <laughs> into like the religious words it's really it's really funny no i totally understand that <laughs> yeah. and i'm sucking you back to some extent because there's a whole lot of people that um I, even in my audience who they're not exposed to people like paul Gottfried. they're not reading exactly like, yeah richard weaver they're not reading paleoconservatives roger scruton whatever like they are um they're still watching fox news they're not getting chronicles and so i, I feel it's a duty that i have to try to introduce them to better thinkers and um so anyway you're one of them so thank you yeah i should also mention too i have another podcast contra mundum with um with with boniface option andrew isker on twitter oh, he's really? he's a more popular account than i am but he he and i do a podcast too and so we have fun uh we do those once a week nice okay yeah. we'll check that out too uh and links are in the info section uh god bless cj okay Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.